This morning we're continuing in our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. So would you take your Bibles and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And the title of the message this morning is Set Apart in Our Response to Sin. Set Apart in Our Response to Sin. There are many memorable moments on a wedding day. Maybe you can sit there and think of your own wedding day. There's so many details, so much planning that goes into preparing for that special day. All of the, your friends and your family gather to celebrate you, to love on you. But I think there's no greater moment on a wedding day, specifically for the groom, when his bride begins to walk down the aisle towards him. There's something uniquely special about that moment. The anticipation has been building and building. And now in this moment, the bride is walking towards the groom, looking lovely, looking radiant, looking pure. In Revelation 19, we read of a marriage feast, a marriage supper of the Lamb. And the Apostle John describes what's happening in this moment, that the church, Christ's bride, is approaching her bridegroom, approaching Christ. And he says, he writes, she's wearing fine linens, bright and pure as she approaches the bridegroom. It's It's a picture of purity, a picture of joy. The church is set apart. It's distinct. The church is holy and pure, not because of what the church has done, but because of what Christ has done for the church. And while we know as the people of God, as God's temple, we know this calling for us. We are to be holy and set apart to look distinctly different from the world around us. We also know about the reality of wrestling with sin. And Paul understands that tension between sin and purity here as he writes to the Corinthian church in chapter 5. A grievous matter of sin is persisting within the midst of this local church. And Paul pleads with them to take action to make it right. But we know, church, that dealing with sin, specifically open and unrepentant sin in the life of the church, is difficult. It's costly. It's uncomfortable. And and we live in an individualized culture and society where confrontation is avoided. But the gospel witness of a church is at stake here in 1 Corinthians 5. When a church fails to respond biblically to open and unrepentant sin within their midst, the beauty and the power of the gospel is diminished. And that leads us to our main point today in 1 Corinthians 5. A church's response to open and unrepentant sin within their midst reveals what they believe about the gospel. A church's response to open and unrepentant sin within their midst reveals what they believe about the gospel. Let's read from God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. This is what God's word says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. 
When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. A church's response to open and unrepentant sin within their midst reveals what they believe about the gospel. Paul here in 1 Corinthians 5 first offers a rebuke to the Corinthian church in verses 1 and 2. A rebuke. It's public knowledge inside and outside of this local church that a member of the local congregation is living in open and unrepentant sin. More specifically, this church member is actively sleeping with his stepmother, an act of incest, which is a direct rejection of God's command in Leviticus 18 not to lay with the wife of your father. But Paul's rebuke is not primarily directed at the unrepentant sinner, but rather his rebuke is aimed at the church members in Corinth. They have tolerated this sin. They have made a decision not to address the issue because of a misunderstanding they had regarding the grace of God. You see, sexuality, sexual immorality, promiscuity, this was commonplace in Corinth. Corinth was not a great place. Sin abounded in Corinth. What baffled Paul about this particular issue was that the sin of incest was something that the pagan Romans found obscene. The lost world didn't even tolerate this act of sin, but the Corinthian church failed to respond. And not only did they tolerate this sin, they also celebrated it. They were boasting in this act of sin. And Paul says to them, you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? The church in Corinth had a flawed understanding of the power of the gospel and of the of the grace of God. Instead of boasting in Christ, the one who has the power to set people free from the bondage of sin, they were boasting in their personal freedom to live in sin. They had a cheap view of grace. Pastor Matt Smethurst describes it in this way. He says, cheap grace says all is forgiven so I can flirt with sin. Real grace says all is forgiven so I can flee from sin. Cheap grace says all is forgiven so I can flirt with sin. Real, sin, real grace says all is forgiven so I can flee from sin. 
Their failure to act upon this issue of sin invited ridicule from the lost world around them. But more than this, they they failed to see the danger of allowing open and unrepentant sin to persist within their midst. They did not see the consequences coming. And that's why in verses 6 through 8, Paul then offers a correction to this church. First a rebuke and then a correction. He recognizes their their misunderstanding of the gospel and corrects them by pointing them to the power of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. Let's look at verses 6 through 8 again. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul corrects these believers by pointing them back to a moment in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 12 uh, and the Passover event and the feast of the unleavened bread. After sending a series of plagues upon the Egyptian people, God says to his people, now is the time for us to leave. Now is the time for you to leave Egypt. I'm going to set you free from your slavery. And God tells them that that very night, he was going to send an angel of death to kill every firstborn son within every home in the land of Egypt. But he also commanded his people to take an unblemished, spotless lamb, a year old male lamb, and slaughter it and cover the door frames with blood. So that when the angel of death came, the angel would pass over all of the the homes covered in blood. But in addition to the blood, they were also to remove all of the leaven out of their homes because God said their exit from Egypt would be swift. They wouldn't have time to sit around and let bread rise and then bake it. They had to get moving. They had to get out of there as quick as they could. So the people of God followed his commands. And guess what? Everything God said would happen, happened. He miraculously led them out of Egypt. They crossed through the Red Sea on their way to the land of promise. And Paul points the Corinthian church back to this moment in history for two specific reasons. He wants them to remember what Christ has done for them. But he also wants them to remember who they are now in Christ. He wants them to remember what Christ has done for them, but also who they are now in Christ. You see, just as the unblemished lamb's blood was spilt and spread over the door frames of those homes in Egypt for the salvation of the people of God, so too Christ, the Lamb of God, purchased the salvation of his people by the shedding of his blood on the cross. By his sacrificial death upon the cross, the Corinthians could be saved from their sin. And so can we. We can be saved from our sin, set free from our sin, forgiven of our sin, because Christ has paid our debt upon the cross. Church, that is good news. That's good news. Remember what Christ has done for you upon the cross, but also remember who you are now because of what Christ did for you upon that cross. This is why Paul says to them in verse 7, church, you really are unleavened. 
You really are unleavened. You really are pure and spotless. You really have been declared righteous, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ did for you. Remember who you are in Christ. The local church has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so there is no place for open and unrepentant sin to persist within its midst. This is the precedent for Paul's warning. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If even a little sin persists in the life of the church, not only is that individual in danger, but also the entire church is in danger of sin spreading throughout its members. In our home before bedtime, our son Levi gets to pick out some books that he gets to read before bed. And so for the past month, he has been picking out the same three books uh, for us every single night to read. And one in particular has been this book, Henry's Awful Mistake. This is actually the copy my wife read when she was growing up. And this book, I've read a lot the past month, (laughs) is about a duck named Henry. And Henry the duck is cooking dinner for his friend Clara, who's coming over to eat. And while he's cooking, he looks down on the floor in the kitchen and he notices one ant on the floor. And in that moment, Henry decides he's, he's got a choice to make. Do I just look away and don't worry about the ant? No, Henry decides I'm going to deal with this ant. I don't want Clara to come over and think my house is dirty. And so he makes a simple decision. I'm going to do whatever I can to get rid of this ant. But what Henry doesn't realize is that one small decision is going to lead to some wild consequences. So, so Henry grabs a frying pan. He starts chasing the ant around the kitchen. You can't catch it. So the the ant goes behind the stove. He pulls out the stove, and there's a crack in the wall. The ant had gone into the crack. Well, how am I going to get the ant now? Henry grabs a hammer, and he starts banging a hole in his wall in the kitchen. So big that he can see an entire water pipe that's behind the stove. And that ant is sitting on that wider water pipe looking kind of smug, like, hey, you can't get me, Henry. And Henry takes that hammer And he pulls it back and he hits as hard as he can and water starts shooting everywhere, all over the kitchen floor. And so Henry grabs a towel, he ties it around the pipe and he goes back to, he's trying to clean up the mess of water in the kitchen and then he's mopping up, he slips, knocks the table over, all the food is on the floor, it's ruined. And while that's happening, the towel comes unraveled and water starts spilling everywhere in the kitchen. So much to the point that Henry's house floods away. It's a pretty morbid kid story. Uh, but, but our son thinks it's hilarious. He has a great time. I can't help but, but think, as I've read this book for the last 30 nights of my life, um, I can't help think about this text. Henry made one small decision He didn't see what was going to happen. He didn't see that this one small decision was going to lead to his house being swept away in a flood. He wasn't looking forward. A tiny matter of sin doesn't stay tiny. A lot of times we think one small thing. It's not a big deal. A tiny sin doesn't stay tiny. It grows and begins to affect not only our, our own lives, but also the lives of the people around us. And in no time, it's caused destruction within the life of an entire local church. 
Just as a little leaven leavens the whole lump, a little sin will lead to devastating consequences. This is what happens when we fail to address sin in our own lives and and in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why Paul follows his correction with a command. First a rebuke, then a correction, and now a command. The church must deal with this issue of open and unrepentant sin by practicing biblical church discipline. By practicing biblical church discipline. Let's take a look back in our text, verses 3 through 5, and then we're going to jump down to the end. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as of present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Jump down to verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul says, I'm not, I'm not present in Corinth, but that doesn't matter. The church has to deal with this. He says, don't wait for me to arrive. Don't wait for me to get to Corinth. Deal with the issue right now. And so Paul commands him to assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus with the power of the Lord Jesus and to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is the same phrase that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 1 verse 20 when he's reminding his disciple Timothy of the danger of shipwrecking your faith. He mentions two individuals, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and he says that these men shipwrecked their faith and so Paul handed them over to Satan so that they would learn not to blaspheme. Paul's command is directly related back to what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 18 when he was walking through the steps of biblical church discipline. Jesus says, if a brother refuses to listen to one or two of his brothers, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This matter of sin in the Corinthian church wasn't a secret. It was out in the open for all to see. And the the man in question was not repentant of his sin. And so now it was time for the issue to be brought before the church so that they could remove him from the membership of the Corinthian church. And before we move forward in in our text, I want to pause and speak a word regarding church membership. Our text here, 1 Corinthians 5, presupposes that followers of Jesus will be members of local churches. Yes, it is true that when you are saved by Jesus, you are grafted into the universal church. You are part of the family of God. But more specifically, when we look in the New Testament, and specifically at New Testament church, at the New Testament church, Christians were members of local churches. This is how people identified to the world that they were followers of Christ. Church membership is a protection for you. 
It's a, it's a gift for you because this is how we enter into accountable relationships with other people. So that if you are drifting into sin, that brother or sister in Christ can come to you in love and lovingly rebuke you and correct you, pointing you back to Christ. So in the context of this passage, you can't remove someone from membership if they are not first a member of this church. Paul charges the church to remove the man from among them. A local church cannot practice biblical church discipline if there are no members of that local church. That is why Paul commands the church in Corinth to practice biblical church discipline because this man who is a member of their church is living in open and unrepentant sin. They are to deliver this man over to Satan by removing him from their fellowship. And later in our passage, Paul says, if someone within the church is claiming to be a follower of Christ, claiming to be a brother, but is actively persisting in open and unrepentant sin, Paul says, don't even eat with them. What that means is he's, he's saying, don't even give the impression that you support their lifestyle of sin. Don't celebrate or tolerate their sin. Rather, the command is to judge those in the church by walking through the steps of discipline. But hear me, church, hear me. The ultimate hope, the ultimate hope in any act of church discipline is that the offender would see the error of his ways and turn back to Christ in repentance and belief. The goal, church, is redemption. The goal is restoration. The church is Christ's bride. We are to be distinct and set apart, holy and pure. We are to look uniquely different from the world around us. And that's why Paul reminds at the end that God will judge those outside of the church. Don't worry about those outside of the church. God will judge those out of the church. But Paul says, you misunderstood what I wrote to you earlier. Don't cut yourself off from relationships with those who don't know Christ. Paul effectively says, you'd have to move to outer space if you wanted to get away from people who don't know Christ. Don't do that. He says, engage with them. We cannot expect non-Christians to act like they know Christ. Because they don't. He says, engage them by declaring the hope of the gospel to them while at the same time holding Christians to the standard of godliness that Christ has called us to pursue by the help of his spirit and his word. This final step of discipline in the church is difficult. It is grieving. But ultimately, it is good for both the unrepentant sinner and for the health of the church. A church's response to open and unrepentant sin within their midst reveals what they believe about the gospel. So Bayleaf, what do we believe about the gospel? How can we respond to a text like this today? I want to offer three ways that we as a church can respond to this text. First, we must reject the temptation to tolerate sin. We need to reject the temptation to tolerate sin in our personal lives and in the life of the church. We've been talking a lot in Corinthians about worldly wisdom. And worldly wisdom promotes the ideology of tolerance. That if sin makes you feel good, then it must be good. But the scriptures tell us a very different story. 
The scriptures tell us that sin is deadly. John Owen, in his famous book, The Mortification of Sin, wrote, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Church, are you tolerating sin in your personal life? Have you grown comfortable with your sin? Are you cozying up to your sin? Maybe you're participating in hidden, unconfessed sin and you're telling yourself, it's not a big deal. Nobody knows about it. What is the harm? Remember, friend, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Don't get comfortable with your sin. Confess your sins. Ask for help. Fight aggressively against your sins. Cling to the promise we read earlier in 1 John 1, 9, that if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't be afraid to bring your sin into the light today. And I want you to hear this morning, as one of your pastors, as your pastoral team, if you're living in unrepentant, unconfessed sin, and you bring that into the light, we're not going to jump to this, t- this passage and say, okay, you've you got to get removed from the fellowship of the church. That's not our heart. That's not what we want to jump to. Actually, the fact that you brought it into the light is evidence that the Spirit is at work in you. That's a good thing. We want to walk that journey of redemption with you, that journey of restoration. Bring your sin into the light. But also, church, let's, let's reject the temptation and tolerate sin within the body, within the body of Christ here at Bayleaf Baptist Church. If we see a brother or sister who is drifting into sin, would we be faithful to go to that brother or sister and speak the truth in love, expressing our concern for them and pleading with them to repent and turn back to Christ? That's the beauty of accountable relationships. We are all going to mess up. Every single one of us in this room is going to mess up. We're all going to fall. We're all going to stumble. And that it is good to know that we are not alone. That we have a brother or sister in our life that's speaking the truth of God into us. That's why I'm so thankful for my discipleship group. That's why I'm so thankful for brothers on this church staff that are willing and will ask the hard questions of me about areas of sin in my life, about how I'm leading my family, about how I'm being faithful or not faithful to the calling God's placed on my life to be a pastor. The brothers in my life who will say, turn back to Jesus, Patrick, because whatever you're pursuing isn't gonna bring you any life. It's not good for you. Turn back to Jesus, who is better. I need that. I need that. You need that. We need that. Who is that person in your life? Who are those people in your life who are watching out for you and calling you back to Christ? Who won't tolerate your sin, but will call you upward and onward to Jesus? We must reject the temptation to tolerate sin. But secondly, this text calls us to rejoice in the sacrifice of Christ to rejoice in the sacrifice of Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus today, would you give thanks to Jesus for how he paid the price for you, for your sin debt on the cross? He lived a perfect life that you couldn't live. 
He died the death that you deserve. He rose victorious from the grave. He extended salvation to you, and now you belong to him. Rejoice in that good news this morning. Rest in the good news of the gospel today. But also remember that you are really unleavened bread. You are really pure and spotless. You really are declared righteous, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. Rest in that this morning. Rejoice in the grace and the goodness of our Savior. But if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, would you consider the sacrifice that Jesus made for you this morning? Would you consider the fact that he shed his blood for you so that you could be forgiven of your sin and have everlasting life? The Bible says that if you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you would be saved. Would that become a reality in your life this morning? Would you believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Would you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Don't live anymore under the power of this age. Don't keep searching for satisfaction in things of this world. Turn to Christ, the only one who can redeem and restore your life. But lastly, church, we must commit to practice biblical church discipline. We must commit to practice biblical church discipline. And for us to do this well, we must value church membership. If you are not a member of Bayleaf, would you engage in the membership process here? Would you commit yourself to the local body of believers here at Bayleaf so that we can encourage one another and hold one another accountable? If it's not Bayleaf, would you join yourself to a faithful local church that preaches the gospel? Join in church membership. Join in this pursuit of Christ with us. But if you are a member of Bayleaf, you play a part in this practice of biblical church discipline. Paul wrote this command to the church, not primarily the church leadership, the church, the members of the church in Corinth. Take that calling seriously. This is not a practice to be taken lightly. It's not a process we should walk through flippantly. Worldly wisdom says that discipline is offensive, that, that is unloving. But friends, godly wisdom says that dealing with sin is the most loving thing we can do. Because it points us back to the forgiveness found in Christ and it draws that brother or sister back into right relationship with the Lord, the one who loves them the deepest. So let's follow the commands that, that Christ laid out for us in Matthew 18. Let's pray for those who refuse to repent of their sins and pray that God would convict them and restore them to right relationship with himself and with the local church. Let's not diminish the beauty and the power of the gospel by not having the hard conversations with people in love. I pray that Bayleaf would be known for our faithfulness to the Lord rather than our tolerance of sin. Let me say that one more time. I pray, and I hope it's your prayer too, that Bayleaf would be known for their faithfulness to the Lord and not their tolerance of sin. May the way that we respond to open and unrepentant sin within our midst declare to the world around us that we believe in the power of the gospel 
That the power of the gospel can save anyone and restore any life. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, you are faithful. You are faithful when we are faithless. God, thank you for your gospel news this morning that while we were dead in our sins, you made a way for us to be saved from our sin. Lord, I want to pray for anyone in this room right now who may be living in hidden, unconfessed sin. They've been tolerating sin in their personal life. Lord, I pray that you would give them the boldness to bring it into the light this morning. That they would talk to, talk to you, but also talk to a brother or sister in Christ. There's going to be pastors down here at the front. Would you come talk to us? Would you bring that sin into the life and receive the forgiveness that we heard of in 1 John 1.9? also pray that if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, doesn't have a personal relationship with you through repentance and belief, that you would draw them to salvation this morning, that they would confess with their mouth that you are Lord and believe in their heart that you raised Christ from the dead. But I also pray for our church, that we would be people who cling to the gospel, that we would keep running back to the grace of God this morning and every day, remembering what you did for us and who we are now in Christ. Thank you that we are really unleavened. Thank you for declaring us righteous. Thank you for making us pure and spotless, not because of what we have done, but because of what your son Jesus did for us. Lord, help us rest in the gospel this morning. We thank you for your love and we thank you for your faithfulness. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week at Bayleaf. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website at bayleaf.org.